Good morning. Welcome to Aletheia Church. Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to have you here with us this morning. Uh, parents of elementary school age kids, if you wanted to dismiss your kids to uh, their classroom time, their teachers will be in the back here uh, ready to take them off to their classroom so you can dismiss them. Uh, if this is your first time with us and you have not yet gotten a scripture journal uh, and would want one, just raise your hand. Uh, and we'll have some people uh, around the room bring one of those to you. It's our free gift to you. Uh, we're studying the Gospel of John together as a church, and we just love uh, for you to have that so you can be able to take notes and follow along and keep that uh, with you. Uh, and so just keep your hand up, and we'll have somebody uh, coming around handing those out to you. So uh, this morning, uh, we're going to talk about fear, and um, there's, a, there's, a, there's an important reason for that, uh, you know, Thinking through things, we all struggle with fear to a certain extent. Um, some of us power through it better than others and fake it. Uh, some of us shut down. Some of us exhibit a wide variety of symptoms. Um, but one thing is true. Fear and anxiety are universally felt human emotions. Like Every one of us in this room has experienced it on some level. I remember as a kid... Fear and anxiety would paralyze me so badly um, anytime I was about to experience something for the first time, anytime I had to experience something new. My parents, by the way, are here this morning and confirm any of these stories I'm about to tell you. Um, so first day of my first grade year, I sorry, sorry, second grade year of elementary school, I had to uh, do the very scary thing of riding a bus for the first time. And my sister, not scared at all, runs across the street, gets on the bus, and I hurl. And sorry for those of you that are squeamish, it's the best I can do. Um, and so my dad has to take me to school because the bus driver's like, yeah, he can't get on. And he's sick, he can't go to school. And it's like, well, he's not actually sick, he's just really, really scared. Um, I remember I would get sick oftentimes before my first sporting event of any new season. Um, I remember when our family was flying from Virginia to Florida for the first time ever, and I was going to be on a plane and being overwhelmingly sick, that I would become so ridden with anxiety and fear as a kid that it would manifest itself as like actual physical illness. And, you know, I've grown a lot over the years out of that for the most part, but every once in a while it rears its head again in my life. I just happen to, to know when it's coming on. And so I share that to say this, fear and anxiety is what we're seeing the disciples experiencing here in John chapter 14. That we're, we're in the final days of Jesus's life here on earth. And as they are sitting with their teacher, with their master, this man that they followed in ministry for three plus years, the, the man that they believe is going to lead the charge to throw out Roman occupation, to see the kingdom of God ushered in, to see the millennial reign of the, the king of kings over Israel, over God's people. They sit there, and instead of experiencing this extreme joy and satisfaction and hope, there's this air over the room where you saw it in chapter 13 and you also see it in chapter 14 where the word that's used to describe the emotions of everyone in that room is troubled. They're troubled at the reality of what they are about to face. 
And fear and trouble are all around us. It's a universal human issue. Some of us experience different levels of suffering and difficulty that cause that to arise, but it is a universal thing that each of us will walk through. And so what we're going to see in our text this morning is as Jesus is engaging with his disciples here in John chapter 14, is he's starting to force us to say, how do we, if we are confessing, professing followers of Jesus, practically walk forward in our belief that Jesus is Lord of our lives, that he's working out all things together for our good, that he is sovereign and sufficient in all things. How do we walk forward in that hope while still experiencing joy in overcoming the reality of the troubles that we will face in this life? To put it a different way, what does Jesus ask of us and encourage us to do as Christ followers when the world is bringing nothing but fear and anxiety towards us? What might the Lord be asking of us? And so if you remember back to John chapter 13, right, what we saw is as Jesus was spending his final evening with his disciples, it says that he was troubled. It says that he was troubled because he knew fully what he was about to experience. Right? He was about to be betrayed by one of his closest friends and ministry partners. He was going to be wrong, wrongfully uh, arrested and then beaten and then crucified and he would die. This is what he was facing and he knew that it was coming. It says that he was troubled at his heart at what he was about to partake in. And I think what's really interesting is this is one of those moments where you see Jesus in all of his strength and glory on full display. Because as I'm reading this interaction here in the upper room, it's called the upper room discourse about chapter 13 through about chapter 17 in the gospel of John. You see that it starts out with letting us know that Jesus is troubled, but very, very quickly, the fear and anxiety of his disciples overrides everything that else is going on. And Jesus is like, okay, I guess I don't have time to be troubled. I'm instead going to meet my disciples with compassion and mercy and love. And when you get to chapter 14, as Pastor Daniel was preaching last week, you saw in verse 1 what Jesus does as he shifts from talking about what he's about to do to meeting his disciples, right? It says this in verse 1 of chapter 14. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, Jesus has just gotten done explaining to his disciples why he's troubled, that he's about to be betrayed, that he's about to be arrested, that he's about to be murdered. And immediately, and maybe not even still fully, but immediately his disciples at least start to understand and get, hey, something's going on here. Something is about to happen. And as we moved into chapter 14, Jesus is moving from explaining and teaching that he's going to be crucified and that something's going to happen to him to this idea of how the disciples are supposed to respond to that. And we saw Pastor Daniel talk about last week that Jesus had encouraged them because he was promising them that what he was about to suffer and endure was going to allow him to go before them and to prepare a place for them. 
that what was about to happen to him was actually ultimately for their good. No matter how wicked and terrible it was, it was ultimately for their good. And then he calls them to believe in him because he had been sent by the Father. So this morning is going to continue on this idea of encouragement and how Jesus is encouraging them to understand that what he's about to do, what he's about to experience is vitally important. But he's trying to prepare them for the present. Whereas what Pastor Daniel talked about last week would prepare them for a future time where they would actually be with Jesus after their death, that this week Jesus is preparing them for life on earth without him being physically present there with them. He's basically teaching them, hey, here is how you should live now until you meet me in eternity. Here's what you should be doing once Jesus leaves. And there's just two points, just two things that he's going to point out. The first one is going to be to love him. And the second one is going to be to rest in his promises. So go over to verse 15 with me of John chapter 14. Look at what he says. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, now remember, before I start unpacking that, right? as we're going through this, we're trying to ascertain what Jesus is encouraging us as his followers to do and how we respond to the present reality of the brokenness of this world and the fear and anxiety that comes with that and how we address that while we are physically here on the earth without Jesus being here as well. So let me start by saying this. The mere fact that Jesus is addressing his disciples this way assumes a couple of things that we need to understand and may actually press up against some theological things that you were taught incorrectly about the scriptures and what they say about following God. Our text this morning and what Jesus is is doing as he's talking to his disciples here is assuming that every human being will face suffering, difficulty, and trials. I think there is a chance that some of us have a belief that if we grew up in the church and that if we prayed a prayer when we were young at some point in time and said that we trusted in Jesus and believed in him, that everything was just supposed to go perfect for us for the rest of our lives. And there is this reality here as Jesus is addressing his disciples before he leaves them, that he's saying, hey, hey, listen, I understand that you're troubled in heart. And you need to understand what I'm about to walk through is, is far better for you than you could dare imagine. But you also need to understand what you need to do once I'm no longer with you teaching you. You need to understand what your life needs to look like. And so there's this assumption here for his disciples Hey, life's about to get pretty tough for you guys. And what we know about the disciples and their life once Jesus had ascended into heaven after his resurrection is that of the 12, 11 of them were martyred for for their faith. And the 12th, the author of the gospel we're reading, they tried to kill him, somehow screwed it up, and so they exiled him to the island of Patmos instead. But every one of them suffered dearly in this life 
for the cause of following Jesus and saying that he was who he promised that he was, God's son in the flesh who came to save the world from their sins. And so Jesus' first call to his disciples here, though, in verse 15, he's saying, hey, hey, there's going to come a moment where I'm no longer with you, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, and you need to be ready for that and understand that it's better that that happens. But while you're still here, after I've left, love me. Love me. Now, that seems simple enough, right? Right? He just says, hey, that's what I want you to do. I want you to love me. But if we read this too quickly, we're going to miss something that I think Jesus wants us to see. Jesus is basically saying to his disciples here that there are many things that do and will fight for our love and attention. We're going to be tempted to allow our our affections, our attention, our love, our, our desires, what we devote our life to, to be drawn in many, many different directions. And as Christians... Jesus is saying to his followers, your chief affections and love in this life should be towards me. And that's not just a a call to understand how we have a, a, a worldview understanding, but I think there's something even deeper here that we miss if we don't look closely. Jesus is calling his disciples to love him. Not a theological position, not a religious tradition, not a practical way of living or philosophy. The call of a Christ follower is that we love Jesus because he is the one that secured restoration and revelation of God. See, the call of a follower of Jesus is that we love Jesus the person. And this, by the way, is something that makes Christianity different than every other world religion that has ever existed. Even if you grew up culturally Muslim and you appreciate the prophet Muhammad and you might even love him and his teachings, he's no longer alive. If you grew up in a culture where you were taught Buddhism and appreciate the teachings of Confucius and subsequently Buddha. Buddha is not alive today. But the thing that marks Christianity as different than all other world religions is the man that we love died but rose again. And that teacher, God's son, still rules and reigns in heaven. And so when we claim to love Jesus, and as Jesus tells his disciples to love him, they're not telling you to love the idea of someone. They're telling you that you love somebody that is actually alive, the way you might tangibly love your mom or your dad or your sister or your cousin or your brother or your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your husband or your wife. You love somebody who actually is alive. I think we tend to, as Christians, understand 
the scriptures and we study theology and we become so robotic that we forget that our love and our affections are not towards the idea of a dead person that lived in first century Palestine. No, we have a real and living God who, by the way, hears your prayers, empathizes with you in your weaknesses, is a faithful high priest petitioning before the Father for you. This is why we are called to love Jesus, not just his teachings, not just his commands, not just theology, but to love him, the person. And let me, let me just say, say this for a second. When you love a person, that changes the way you interact with them. I remember, like, as a kid, my parents, like, starting in middle school, they would be like, hey, Kevin, are there any girls that you're kind of interested in? I'd be like, nope. And my mom in particular, she would, she would be asking questions, and I'd just be like, no offense, ladies. Um, yeah, they're kind of annoying. Like, they're, they're kind of clingy, and, like, I'm just kind of cool hanging with my bros. Like, you know, they're, they're not clingy. They're not problematic. I remember I dated this girl my eighth grade year and dated like, come on, let's be honest, right? Middle school, like, what are you doing, right? It's like I told my son this, this year, right? We, we had a conversation heading into the school year just about like, you know, what it meant to start heading into the teenage years and into middle school. And I'm like, dude, you don't, like, we're not gonna let you date. That's for the protection of the females at the school that you attend. But also the point of dating is to get married and you are nowhere near there. So we can have friends. We can even be kind of interested, but we're just not gonna do that. So anyway, I dated this girl eighth grade year, right? I think that was the equivalent of holding hands in the hallway in between classes, which, by the way, I hated because it prevented me from hanging out with my guy friends, right? And so I dumped her. The vitriol from that young lady and her friends, right? Like, you're so mean. The truth hurts, right? Like, it's a lot of work, right? But, and here's why I'm sharing this story, because, like, some of the ladies, I see your face, like, I hate you, Kevin, right? right? Here's why I'm sharing that story, right? At that point in time in my life, I liked the idea of being in love and dating somebody, but I didn't actually like her. I didn't actually love the person. When you love the person, everything changes, Right? Like I dated on and off through high school with people, even into college, and then I met Jackie. And when I met Jackie, it was like, game over. What do you want, ma'am? I'll do whatever you ask. Anything. Like, anything to get you just to notice I exist. Right? I went contra dancing multiple times. But half of you have no idea what that is. Right? basically like hillbilly line dancing. Just imagine that. It's like probably the best way to describe it. Totally not my scene at all. Couldn't wait to go. Why? Because I loved her and she was interested in it. And it mattered to me because it mattered to her. When you love a person versus just the idea of them, it changes everything. This is why sometimes when I meet some of you guys, younger people who tell me you're, you're dating somebody or whatever else, and, I, and they'll be like, I, I just don't know if I'm going to marry them. I'm like, then you're not. You're just not that into them. And that's okay, but stop wasting their time. 
you want to be married, but you don't want to be married to that person, just stop wasting their time. It's okay. Right? Jesus is calling to his disciples here, hey, love me, not just my teachings, not just what I can provide for you. Right? The call of a Jesus follower is to love Jesus the person because he's worthy of it. And loving Jesus means seeking to grow in that love for him the same way that a husband and a wife spend a lifetime growing in that love towards one another. Right? To love Jesus means to continue in fellowship with him in prayer. Prayer is just talking to him. Right? Could you imagine a married couple that never talked to one another? How do you think that relationship's going to go? Right? It's, the same, it's the same way in loving Jesus. We cultivate prayer. And you're like, well, I don't know what I'm doing. Good. I didn't know what I was doing with Jackie either. We, we're figuring it out. We're fi- we figured out how to communicate and talk with one another. You can figure it out with Jesus. You fellowship with Jesus and fellowshipping with other believers. Because Jesus says to love him is to love your brothers and sisters. It means being a part of a local body of Christ matters. That gathering this morning like we are is not just something we do because of tradition, but because it actually matters in our love for Christ and how we grow in that love and affection towards him. It means that we grow in knowledge and wisdom of his word because it's how he speaks to us. It's why we study books of the Bible here at Aletheia Church because we want to hear from the man whom we love. And it means that we ultimately are satisfied in him more than anything else. Dia Carson says, love for Jesus is more than intellectual assent or ethical obedience. It is in the very revelation of Jesus as the Christ. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples here, hey, you're you're worried about me believing, about me leaving, I get it. You're worried about me leaving and going to the Father and to prepare a place for you. I get it. The antidote to that worry and that fear of me going is to love me. And then that inevitably leads to the question, the practical question of what is love? What does it mean to love? Right, because in no other time in human history from what I can ascertain has a word been so hijacked as the word love has in in our current day and age? Right, because if I say, you need to love Jesus, most of us probably immediately were kind of like, that's kind of weird. Like, is that some sort of like emotional, visceral, like romantic response that I'm supposed to have for him? That's really strange. Like, you're kind of weird, Pastor Kevin. What's going on? But see, when Jesus talks about this idea of love, he actually defines it for them of how that plays itself out. He says in verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Right, the way in which you and I display our love for Jesus, the person, is in our obedience. And it's mentioned multiple times here in these verses. It's mentioned in verse 15. It's mentioned again by him in verse 21. And then the antithesis of it is mentioned again in verse 24. And Jesus is saying, if you love me, 
because you're claiming to love me, right? Peter had just got done saying he would die for Jesus because he loves him so much. If you really love me, you will show it and display it through changing behavior, which is in obedience with my commands and my word to you. And this is important. I, I, I don't want us to miss this because so often many of us believe that obedience comes first and then we will love Jesus. We, we get it backwards. We think, oh, I have to obey. And if I obey Jesus enough, I, I, I'll love him. Or that's how, or maybe we're even more, we think our obedience earns God's love. Right? But if we understand what John says in his, in his epistle to the churches in 1 John chapter 5, verse 2, he says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. It's like, you want to know whether you love God and love his people? Look and see if you're obeying him or not. And notice how Jesus doesn't say there, if you love me, you will be perfect in obedience. No, he says obedience. Right? Like, my kids are not perfectly obedient, but I would describe them as fairly obedient. And they are hopefully through Jackie and I's teaching and instruction and love towards them, moving in a pattern of more obedience. And it's the same in the life of a Christ follower. See, because love and delight in him always leads to changed behavior. As a Christian grows in their love and affections towards Christ, they are more aware of their own sin and they seek to turn from it and to the commands of Jesus. It's why the Christian life is full of a constant state of repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. As we seek to obey him. And this is how life works, by the way. It's not just that as we increase in our love for Christ, we will be more obedient. But many a life has been changed by love. I cannot describe to you the number of young, unmotivated men I have met over the years doing ministry in a college town. And this isn't just men, but it tends to be men at a much higher clip than the ladies. So men, you're gonna have to listen to this lecture. The number of times I've met young, unmotivated men who can't even get out of bed before 11 o'clock to have a meeting with me that they asked to set up. It's like, I would show up somewhere to meet someone for coffee and I go, oh, I was up till 5 a.m. playing Call of Duty. Sorry, man, like I can't make it. It's like, didn't you have an 8 a.m.? Yeah. Whoa, okay. All right, got it. Then that same young guy who hadn't cleaned his apartment in six months, I think was doing his laundry, but not positive, right? Was skating through school, meets a young lady that he falls in love with, and guess what? All of a sudden, this guy's taking care of his health. He's talking about getting a job. He's working hard and going to class. He's becoming disciplined. He's showering. And you're like, what happened? Man, like I've been telling you this for three years now. Like what, like, what are you talking about? Oh, yeah, man, but my girlfriend, man, she like, she told me to wear deodorant. Dude, I told you to wear deodorant. But he didn't love me. 
right? But he loved that young lady, right? And to display that love towards her, what did it lead to? It led to some life change, right? In the same way it works with God, right? Like that young man didn't change his behavior in order to love that young woman. No, his affections drove his behavior changed and then it displayed it. And our love for Christ does the same. And so Jesus says to his disciples, yes, I am leaving and I'm going to prepare a place for you, but don't be troubled. Love me and show that love by obeying me. And just as a quick side note before we move into the next point, obedience to Christ will always lead you to, in the end, more joy, not less joy. Because the reality is, is that disobedience actually will cause you more harm and lead you into all sorts of things that you don't want to be involved in that the pathway to joy in this life is not disobedience, but obedience to Christ and his word. And so Jesus says, hey, look, while, while you are still here and the mission that I'm going to give you to go and be the church and to spread the gospel to every tribe, nation, and tongue, if you want to experience joy in this life, if you want to put aside the fear and anxiety and the, tr the troubled heart that you're currently experiencing, the first thing you need to do is love me and love me by obeying me. And the second thing he's going to call them to do is actually not going to so much involve their response, but instead is going to call them to mentally assent to understanding the reality of what God has promised them. Because he's going to call them to rest in some promises that he's going to make to them. So not only are we called to love Jesus while we are still here and manifest that love through obedience, but Jesus also encourages us to trust and rest in some of these important promises. And so in the rest of the text this morning, you're going to see four promises that Jesus makes to his disciples. And Tony Morita is the one that pointed these out, and so I just ripped them straight from him. They're really, really good, but here's what we need to see. The first one starts in verse 16. Christian, you are not alone. Look at what he says. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus says, hey, I... I know I'm leaving you, but don't worry. I'm going to ask dad, and dad's going to send another helper to you. And there's two things I want you to see in that promise that Jesus gives them in these verses. The first one is he says that the father will send to all believers another helper. Now that word another in the Greek means of the same kind or of the same essence of Jesus. And so what we kind of see here is this really cool moment where one, we're, we're getting some doctrinal ideas of the Trinity here 
that the Holy Spirit is the helper that the Father and the Son are going to send to the disciples. And that helper is of the same essence. But not only is he of the same essence because the Holy Spirit is God, but also this helper, the Holy Spirit, is coming to fulfill the same role as Jesus in the life of a believer. So while Jesus himself, the man, may not be physically present any longer with the disciples, and that's why they're so troubled at what they're about to face, Jesus is saying to them, hey, this helper is going to do the exact same things for you that I did, even more so. He's going to comfort you. If you go down to verse 25, he says that the Holy Spirit is going to remind them and teach them, which is exactly what Jesus has spent his entire ministry doing with them, reminding them of what the Old Testament text said, and then teaching them who God really is in light of that text and who he is as well. And there's this assumption there that Jesus makes about his disciples. It's like, I know that I've told you uh, that I'm God's son in the flesh, that I'm coming to die in your place, that I'm going to be crucified, dead, and then rise again and ascend into heaven. And yet you're going to forget things that I taught you. And you see that in this gospel, by the way, right? You see John say multiple times, yeah, Jesus said this to us and we didn't understand it. Or we didn't remember this until later on. And what he meant by that is they didn't remember it until the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit came upon them and the Holy Spirit started reminding them, oh, that's what Jesus meant by that. And this is why we as Christians, if you've been walking with Jesus for any length of time, will find yourself just sometimes opening up God's word, reading it, and having an aha moment. Oh, that's what that means. Or sometimes you'll be at church and the pastor will be preaching something and they'll say something and you'll be like, oh, that's what that means because the Holy Spirit is illuminating in our hearts for us the truth of God and his word. And Jesus says, I know it feels like I'm leaving and you're going to be alone, but do not fear, you are not alone. The helper is coming. And the Holy Spirit is a wonderful gift from God for every believer who is in this room this morning. He's comforting you. He's convicting you of sin and reminding you of God's goodness towards you in Christ and teaching and granting repentance and faith as you continue to walk with him. And the good news that Jesus gives his disciples here is not only is that helper being sent, but look at the second half of it, to be with you forever. We don't need to dwell on this, but there is never a moment for you as a Christ follower, if you are truly one of his disciples, where God is not present with you. Don't you just pause and think about that for a minute. It's, it's why I kind of get kind of funky in that pas passage in Matthew chapter 18, where at the end, right, it says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I will also be. And, you know, sometimes you'll be around well-meaning people and they'll be like, oh, Jesus is here. And I'm like, well, yeah, but he was here when it was just me too. Right? And actually what's going on there is actually there's like conflict going on in the church and what Jesus is actually telling his disciples is if two or three of you are gathered in, in an agreement 
on how to handle that conflict, you can rest assured that Jesus is behind what you're saying as well. But that aside, it's a reminder to you that no matter what you face in this life, no matter how difficult it is, the Holy Spirit is both with you and in you. Even in your darkest moments, he's with you, advocating for you, comforting you. Like my wife and I just had one heck of a week. Right when I got the text on Saturday telling me that my son had a seizure and he was on the way to the hospital and I'm hundreds of miles away in another state and I can't get a flight back that night. Remember I told you earlier when I have a bunch of anxiety, I feel physically ill? Yep. I could not physically muster words to pray even though I knew that's what I needed. And I remember walking off to the side calling Pastor Daniel to get them to come pick up my oldest son so he could stay with them. And I just sat there and I just said, God, I don't know what to say, help. And he met me there. Because he promises that he will never leave us. And by the way, my situation was not fixed. I didn't get a flight. I didn't sleep. I still had to drive back from Jacksonville straight to the hospital on Sunday morning. And my kid was in the hospital for a couple more days. And it was tough. But I wasn't alone. Because God did exactly what he promised he always would do to his disciples here in John, in John chapter 14. And so he says to his disciples, I know I'm leaving, but don't be troubled. I promise you're not alone when I leave. Now, not only are you not alone, but then he says, starting in verse 18, that we have what is doctrinally described as union with Christ. Let me read these verses to you, starting in verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, important note there, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? So let's just pause there. So Jesus still anticipates a problem that the disciples are going to have with that promise of another helper, right? It's still not him. Like, okay, yeah, I know you're promising one that's like you and, and is going to do the same things you do, but it's still not you. You're leaving us. You're abandoning us. He says, you know, it's kind of like a young child being left at home, and even though there's a nanny that they love coming to be with them, the child still panics because it's not mom and dad who are still around. And his disciples are in this same mental state. And Jesus says, 
hey, calm down. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, this is ultimately a promise of his resurrection. That three days later, he would raise from the grave and go to them. That they would see him again. And by the way, because he lives, they will also live. But a more important thing is being taught here, that over the long haul, he says, I am in my Father, you and me, and I in you. And this is what is theologically known as union with Christ. It's what it means to be a Christ follower. And to, to summarize it, basically it means you're a part of the family. That, that because of Christ and because you are in him and he in you and that the, the Father is in, uh, he is in the Father, that we are a part of the family of God and it can't be broken. John Piper puts it this way. He says, union with Christ is the reality of all the ways that the Bible pictures our human connectedness to Christ in which he is indispensable for every good that we enjoy. No saving good, no eternal good, no God-exalting good, no soul-satisfying good comes to us except as we are connected to Christ. To know your purpose in life, to know how to navigate, the troubles of the world, to know who you are and why you were created in the first place only comes from this union with Christ. There are many, many counterfeit unions out there. What is my sexuality? Who am I going to be married to? What is my job? How much money can I make? And if you'll notice, we as human beings find ways to wrap our identity in all of those markers. And what Jesus is saying here is the only true, soul-satisfying, fear-reducing, anxiety-killing antidote in life is to rest in the promise that we are united to Christ if we are Christ followers. That we are a part of the family of God because of his goodness towards us. If 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 you want to experience the true joy of life, It's not going to come in being married. Jackie, I love you, but I think you would agree with me. I don't even know where you're sitting. Marriage is awesome. It's a terrible God. Some of you guys can't wait to get into your career field and start your career. Having a job, good. God created us to work. Your vocation is a terrible God. Money, having it will make life easier in some ways. It is a terrible God. What Jesus is promising to his followers is, hey, I will send the helper to you and do not be troubled. You are united to me because of your love for me. Not because of anything they're doing, not because they've earned anything, no, but simply because Jesus says it is so. And by the way, I would love to talk for another at least two hours on union with Christ, but I don't think you guys want to sit here through all that. However, I am going to give you a book recommendation here, and if you don't believe me, you can find Pastor Daniel around here somewhere. He loves this book as well. 
It's called Union with Christ by Rankin Wilborn. Fantastic book. Okay. And so Jesus says, do not be troubled. You are not alone. Do not be troubled. You are united to the Father with me. And then look at the third thing he says, starting in verse 23. We are loved by God the Father. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but I just want to, I want to point something out. And maybe it'll get you thinking a little bit. If we truly love Jesus, and presumably, hopefully you do, or you are here this morning because someone in your life does and they want you to love him as well. But if you are here this morning and you love Jesus and you are a Christ follower, the Father loves you and it's making his home with you. That's that what Jesus promises here. And I think there's, there's this tendency, and I want, I want to slow down just for a second. Right? Here's what Jesus is saying to his followers. Hey, guys, my father loves me. Dad loves you too. I, oftentimes as a Christian, and I, and I even wrestle with this sometimes, is there's, this, there's a, this internal battle that we have between God the Father and God the Son. And, and it's easy for us to conceptualize that Jesus loves us because he died on the cross for us and and was buried and then rose again for our sins. It's like, yeah, like, I, I get that Jesus loves me. But then we have this view of the Father, like he's the angry guy in the background still kind of yelling at us. Like, oh, yeah, Jesus loves me, but I'm not too sure about the Father. I'm not, I'm not confident about what's going on there. And Jesus says, look, I will never leave you. You will not be alone. I love you, and so does my dad because you have loved me. You don't need to question whether the father's angry with you or, or you know, it's not as if they're in the, in the throne room of heaven, Jesus and the father are arguing about you. It's like, oh, he's not that bad, dad. Like, come on, you know? No, see, the father loves you because of Christ. You are deeply loved by him because of his obedience. So do not be troubled because you were loved by your heavenly father. And lastly, he reminds them of the sufficiency of God that God can do anything in verses 25 to 27. Look what he says. He says, these things I've spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Love that. I'm teaching you right now, but you're not going to remember anything. It's kind of like parenting. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You see, notice the way that Jesus presents the disciples and the way he presents God. 
disciples are told not to be troubled, meaning there's an assumption that they're troubled. Tells them not to be afraid, meaning that there's an assumption that they're afraid. He talks about how they can't remember even what he's saying to them literally in that moment. And yet, look what he says about the Father. He says, the Holy Spirit will be sent to you by the Father, and he will teach you to remember, and you will be taught, and you will remember all that I said. Not, you might remember, and you might be taught. No, you will remember, and you will be taught. And then this last piece is really key. Peace I leave with you. Guys, when God talks about peace, he's not talking about an absence of conflict or war. That's certainly part of it. But no, when peace is talked about in the scripture, it's ultimately rooted in the Hebrew word shalom. And the idea of shalom is good news. See, shalom isn't just the absence of conflict or brokenness. It's actually the restoration to its whole being. So when Jesus says, peace I leave with you, he's saying, hey, once I have died on the cross in your place and rose again and ascended to the Father and the Holy Spirit has been sent to you. Remember back to Genesis 1 and 2 where Adam and Eve walked in the garden and all was right with the world? And Adam and Eve knew who their God was and why they were here and how they were made in the image and likeness of their creator and that they were to rule and have authority and dominion over all the earth in the way that God would as an as a act of worship towards him. That's being restored. That because of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, peace has been brought to mankind through his work. And that we now have peace. You are judicially restored to the Father. You are his. And you are at the same time being restored to your full humanity. This is why, this is the biggest lie of our culture. Right, you'll, you'll hear things like, be your authentic self. Follow your heart. The problem with that is, is that our hearts are deceptively wicked above all else, according to the psalmist. The problem is, is because of the curse of sin brought by Adam and Eve into the world and our own sin, our authentic self can't be realized apart from Christ. But that once it is, your authentic self becomes who God created you to be because you didn't create yourself. So you don't even know who your authentic self is supposed to be. It says that peace, he leaves with you. That means it stays upon you for eternity. Because of the shalom that Christ has secured for you, you are being restored into exactly who God created you to be. Rest and trust in him 
not yourself. And so he says to his disciples, do not be troubled. For your God is sufficient to teach you, to remind you, and to leave my peace upon you. And then look at what he finishes off by saying in verse 28. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father and for the Father is greater than I am. Basically saying, hey, if you really understood what I was saying to you, you would be really excited that I'm about to die in your place on the cross and that I'm leaving you. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Love that. Satan thinks he's going to win. It's going to be a huge juke. And then look at this last line. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise. Let us go from here. You know, that... That last statement, rise, let us go from there, is is in the Greek like a military battle charge heading into battle. Jesus is saying, I've told you all you need to know. Now I'm going to go take care of business. It's time to go put Satan in his place. It's time to go put sin and death in its proper place. I'm going to battle, and all that I have just promised to you, I am about to accomplish. And when I am done, it is finished. See, church, this morning, no matter what fear, anxiety, or uncertainty you may be facing in your life in this moment, because Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried, rose again, and is ascended and alive at the right hand of the Father Almighty, it is done. Everything that we just talked about is finished and is a present reality for you this morning. You are not alone. You are a part of the family of God because of your union with Christ. The Father loves you and he is sufficient to see you through all that he has planned for you in this life. And Jesus is calling us to rise and face all that is before us, not in our own power, but to love Jesus by growing and fellowship and fellowship with others and obeying him and resting in his promises by believing and exercising our faith. Not alone, but united with Jesus, loved by our heavenly Father, because God is enough.